The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week, rather than our usual one, because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined by my friend and the brilliant writer, Christopher Caldwell, who has uh, written a very interesting article in a magazine called The Lamp, which is a very interesting Catholic quarterly, I think it is. And the article is called Against Human Rights. And Chris is, uh, as some listeners of the podcast may know, the author of a, a fascinating book called The Age of Entitlement, which is a history of America since the 60s. And I highly recommend everybody uh, who hasn't read that does read that. And these two things connect entitlement and human rights, as as you've made pretty clear in the piece in the book. I suppose the, this is an Americano podcast. And, it's, and I, the reason I thought it was relevant to uh, an Americano podcast is because while America didn't invent human rights, America is is the superpower that, that grew with human rights and human rights grew because of American power. To the extent now that human rights are almost more powerful than a religion, I think you say, in your piece. Can you explain a little bit what you're thinking there? That's interesting. You know, there is a there is one rival, I would say, for um, this title of being the country of human rights, and that is France, right? France had, uh, you know, the, the, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen with its, uh, with its revolution, and... It had a kind of a revivification of that principle with the uh, Dreyfus affair. In the wake of that, there were a number of the there were a number of leagues, like the League of the Rights of Man, uh, were formed to sort of like spread a a kind of human rights approach to, let's say, public morality as a way of kind of explicitly replacing the Catholic Church's role. It, in, in that light in France, which, uh, which it was felt had been, had been greatly abused uh, in the 1890s. But you're right. I do think that in its modern incarnation, human rights is a very American thing. I mean, the, the most American expression of it is our Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is really not, we've had a lot of Civil Rights Acts before, but uh, there, there was one in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, but they were actually about civil rights. I think the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is more about human rights than it's about civil rights. And I, I think that um, it, the, the principle has kind of expanded into things like feminism, gay rights, rights of migrants, and that sort of thing. And that's the sort of that's the sort of, uh, let's say, movement that has crested in the age of American empire, for lack of a better term. Well, interesting you use the word empire, because 
I suppose uh, America does not see itself as an empire, tries not to. And perhaps human rights uh, has been the way in which America behaves like an imperial power, because it, it, uh, it, it is imperialistic about human rights, or has been. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm using empire colloquially, kind of, but let's just, I, I don't think it's, 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 it's necessarily a, a governing tool, but it's, uh, it's the ethic of this empire in the same way that, um, uh, let's say, missionary Christianity was the ethic of the, of the, of the British Empire. It's the, it's, it, it gives a kind of an identity to the people who are laying down the rules. It is the, it is the ethic behind the rule, rule making. Yes. And it's not just, uh, I mean, obviously it touches on everything. It touches on our, the way we think about sexuality, the way we think about uh, almost every aspect of human life now, the way we argue about it, certainly. But let's focus on something you mentioned there, which is immigration, because, of course, that is the row that is uh, roiling politics across the West, in Europe and America uh, and elsewhere. And do you think that um, the way we think about human rights, uh, the way our societies do, means that we cannot confront the gravity of the immigration crisis, crises that we're facing? Absolutely. I think that there's a very specific problem, which is the, um, the, the refugee convention, which, is a, which was settled in, in, in the immediate, not in the immediate aftermath, but in the aftermath of the, of the Second World War, still regulates our, the way we treat asylum and, and, and political asylum seekers and, and political refugees. I think that, that this model, it was developed at a time when Europe still dominated the world and it's, it's Europe, meaning the European countries and the United States, still dominated the world and could, could, could lay down the laws. And the volume of, of refugees and asylum seekers, although it had been high, had fallen to very manageable levels. So we've got a set of rules that date from the early 1950s basically to to manage the the last few dozens or hundreds of cases of of people who are really in trouble when you have that few cases you can demand a really high standard of rights protection from the countries that are processing these people you know who are applying for for admission you cannot do the same thing when you have millions or literally tens of millions of people moving through the world world's bureaucracies demanding the same thing. Yes. And it's brought about a clash between uh, uh, politics or popular will, uh, as expressed through politics and politically elected governments, and the law. And at the moment, it seems, it's the law that wins because the law is run by judges and lawyers and human rights lawyers and so on, who are quite... In, we see it in Britain uh, with the Rwanda plan. We see it with Ma in France with Macron's uh, attempt to reform immigration. They are quite able to block attempts to toughen up immigration laws, um, to reform immigration laws uh, on the grounds of human rights and citing uh, UN conventions, the UN Convention on Human Rights and the, and the Convention on Refugees. Yeah, this is a very, it's a very big subject and it's not just limited to migration. I know that this is your Americano podcast, so I don't want to bring Coles to Newcastle by talking about, about Britain, but, 
But obviously, Brexit was about uh, some of these issues. And your own, the, the evolution of the, of, of human rights, of, 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 of Blair's uh, introduction of the, you know, of the Human Rights Act in, in, in Britain in the late 90s is an example of subordinating the parliamentary role in lawmaking to, a, to an ulterior set of, um, of rules. And I think that the, the development of your Supreme Court goes along with that. I mean, the model for the triumph of law over democracy is judicial review as, as the United States developed it, you know, after Marbury versus Madison in the early 19th century. And that, when you talk about law, I mean, I, I think that that's the model that a lot of, let's say a lot of other Western countries are trying to imitate. That's, that's the aspect. And maybe that's why it's, it's so easy to associate human rights with, with the United States. Because it is a, it's kind of a set of values that's held to be exterior to, but superior to demo- democracy, superior to whatever the, the public may vote. Well, I mean, we could take the coals from Newcastle to the, to the Texan border. <laughs> yeah. Where, um, you know, you have this enormous immigration crisis now, which is going to play a big part uh, in the presidential election. And again, you have lots of politicians saying they want to do something about it on either side and not doing something about it, either because they themselves are perhaps bound by their own thoughts about human rights and refugees or because uh, they run into legal blocks. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, that's a that's a, a slightly different case than, the, than, than what we're talking about, because the, the clash between democracy and law is not as direct. I do agree that the American immigration problem on the southern border has produced that very clash. And I think it was the the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, which is one of the was meant to be one of the major immigration acts in the history of the country. It was meant to be the equivalent of the immigration laws passed in the in the mid 1920s, which shut down immigration altogether. What happened with those laws is that um, you had a combination of generous measures towards migrants, like giving them a route towards citizenship, and of really draconian measures, like it was illegal to hire an illegal immigrant, and, and there were penalties for employers. What happened once the courts got their hands on those is that all of the the welcoming parts of the law were okayed and all of the restrictive parts of the law were overturned. And it's very interesting. Almost exactly the same thing has happened in France over the last um, two months with Emmanuel Macron's or Gérard Gérard Darmanin's immigration bill there, where the Constitutional Council has overturned certain measures in it but kept others and led to a lot of suspicion on the right that that was actually the, the, the outcome that was aimed at by, by Macron and Darmanin. So you have that, you do have a direct clash between legislation and, and lawyering. What's going on on the, uh, on the southern border of the United States now is a little bit different. That's a real jurisdictional problem between states, particularly the state of Texas and the federal government. Funny you should mention that we we had Eric Zamor in the Spectator office making uh, precisely that point about Macron's law. But let's let's move on to talking about 
human rights, because in this piece that you wrote, you talk about it, interestingly, as something that's arguably more powerful than religion. Uh, and you have this excellent line which you say, in which you say, uh, the religious crusader, if he is in good faith, may well fear judgment under the law of the God he proclaims. The human rights crusader is the promulgator of the law he proclaims. And if you are making your arguments in the name of humanity, then a fellow who doesn't agree with you is an enemy of humanity to be treated accordingly. Yeah, I, humanity is a very powerful thing in our time. In, it, 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 it's a very powerful argument. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you could look at Black Lives Matter or, uh, as a movement, which is a classic militant human rights movement. If you really believe that there are people in American society who believe that black lives don't matter, then there's then they really need to be corrected in a very serious way. And there's almost nothing which there's almost nothing which, you know, people protecting black lives from people who don't think those lives matter. You can permit them almost anything. You know, you know, in the same way you look at uh, the um, the the Libyan, the, the, the run up to the Libyan war, particularly in Britain and France, you know, under Cameron and and Sarkozy, where, you know, uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi in 2011 was accused, you know, not just of misrunning his country of, or of repressing the, the the political opposition, but of being on the verge of committing crimes against humanity. Once that once that became the the the, the sort of accepted view of the Liber- Libyan uh, situation, there was no stopping the war. There was just no argument that could be placed in the way of David Cameron and Nicolas Sarkozy and eventually Barack Obama and the war they wanted. And it turned out to be an exceedingly costly and and foolish war. So um, it's, yes, there, there, it, there's something about, uh, let's say, human rights, arguments about human rights that dangerously lowers the bar of, 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 of justification for statesmen who want to do really pretty extreme things. Yes. And I suppose both those points point towards the impossibility of universalism, because human rights are meant to be universal and yet you know black lives matter the obvious response and a response that was made a lot to the black lives matter campaign was that all lives matter but that argument was essentially lost at the time uh, because black lives matter had some so much potency and power behind it as a as a movement i don't think it was lost i think everyone tried to make it it was it was not lost it was people said it again and again but whenever they did they were actively opposed and i think that has to do with the the American civil rights model of, of, of special protection for the idea of protected groups. I don't think that means that universalism is, um, is impossible. I just, I, I think it just means that it's kind of, it's kind of under threat and the word has been claimed more by human rights defenders than by people representing any other kind of or, or, or I suppose what I meant by universalism being impossible is it, 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 for it to be good, it needs to have human nature to be good, and inevitably, uh, human nature is not. 
That's right. That's right. And well, and 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 I think that the list of things nowadays that are considered universal and commonsensical is it's kind of narrowed a little bit. I mean, probably the majority of the Decalogue would probably be stuff that people could agree agree on. But I mean, it's the area of consensus is shrinking. I mean, I, I think thou shalt not kill is a is, you know, is a pretty good thing, you know, respect your mother and father is a, is a, it, it, most people would agree that that's a good thing. But beyond that. Well, you, you, you talk about uh, the late and you say underappreciated French political theorist, Julian Freund. And I think what, 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 what he gets at is that um, it eventually becomes about sex uh, because um, the, 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 promulgation of life, the continuation of life, is intrinsic to our understanding of human rights because it came out of Christianity and it came out of the Enlightenment. But now you have, with special characteristics being protected at all costs, you have uh, laws being passed that are, that diverge from that, particularly when we talk about same-sex unions and so on. Yes, and, and, and so I, I, I do think you're right. You get You get to a point where where there's no idea of a natural barrier to, to anything. I mean, it becomes man, him, there, there aren't, it's, it's no longer that there are universal rules that apply to all mankind. It's that, that man has a vocation to become universal himself, him or herself. Yes. Uh, and do you think we may be reaching a, a sort of crisis point in human rights? You know, cause we, you've got the immigration issue, where people are increasingly frustrated and, and essentially people now see, voters in democracies now see human rights as a block to governments doing what they want them to do. And that you may see quite a, uh, maybe even possibly dangerous rebellion against principles of human rights like thou shalt not kill. Yeah, well, oh, I don't, I don't know that that, I, I mean, that that is, I don't think that there's a re- rebellion against that part of human rights. I think it's, it's more, there's more of a rebellion against the way human rights is at odds sometimes with national self-determination, the way it's used as a kind of a, a veto on, the, um, on national institutions and particularly democratic institutions. It's become more anti-democratic. It's, it's clashing more with, with election Results and so it gives the people who oppose it a, a legitimate reason to think that it's producing not great outcomes. I don't know that we're necessarily at a. I, I don't know whether you'd call it a, a, a crisis point, but you are reaching the point where a lot of people are. We're we're just saying, for instance, that turning away an asylum seeker at the border or, uh, you know, or coming across the channel, just saying that that is a violation of human rights is no longer as convincing as it might have been in, say, 1975. Chris, uh, it's always fascinating talking to you. Uh, I hope we get a chance to do it again soon. Um, Thank you very much for coming on to Americano. Well, thank you for having me, Freddie. That's all for this episode of the Americano podcast. I'd like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferose, and urge you to leave a generous kind and warm-hearted review of this podcast uh, on whichever platform you listen to it.